Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. I am Timothy George, the Dean of the Divinity School and usually the host, but today a special host for a special series on faith, work, and economics, Dr. Mark Devine. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Today we're happy to have uh, a special guest, Pastor Dan Scott, who is pastor of Christ Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Dan, we're so glad to have you with us today. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thanks. It's uh, just a delight and a joy to be here and be on your campus. I know that you are interested in the intersection of faith, work, and economics, and I wondered if you might share with our audience uh, why, how, did, how did it come about that you became interested in this as a working pastor? Well, uh, we had in about 1980, we had a, a visitor to our church in Nashville, uh, Lauren Cunningham, that founded Youth with a Mission, and we were having a missions conference, or thought we were, and so uh, Lauren, you know, gave his sermon the night, you know, the Sunday night, and then, and then we were meeting, I think it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And he starts talking about economics, and I was really disappointed because from my background, these were two very different worlds, and the people weren't really interested in that. They were interested in doing real ministry abroad and so forth. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, his uh, his talks. He, were, he was rambling his way through to the place where a lot of us have come since, and uh, he felt that he had had some sort of epiphany of understanding about how the gospel ought to influence uh, the economy. Anyway, it, it had profound effect on me by the end of the third day that was very poorly attended. So I put together a, a sermon, which I can tell you about in a little bit, that just kind of blew the church up. Tell us about that sermon and, and other changes that, that uh, were brought into your ministry because of this, I guess, shared epiphany about uh, faith, work, and economics. Well, Lauren, Lauren um, um, held his hands like a, a spider doing push-ups on a mirror, if you can think of like your two hands just kind of like mirroring one another uh, in, in the uh, vertical position. And so he said, uh, traditional societies work like this. And he said, on the bottom are the poor and they're pushing up. And on the top are the wealthy and they're pushing down. The wealthy and the powerful use their wealth to oppress the poor and the poor resent and push back. And from time to time, then, there's a revolution, in which case we invert the hands. He, he averted his hands and said, and then in a short time, uh, it's the same order again, only it's, a, you know, different people. And he said that's what a revolution looks like. But then he said Christ comes, and Christ says to us, says to the poor, his message is to the poor. He says it's good news to the poor. And and Christ says to them, don't don't resent uh, the the wealthy. They too are lost. So he he you know he goes after Zacchaeus and other people and cares for them. And he says, don't just lose the resentment. That's not going to help you. Uh, just be at peace. You know, you've got great treasures in heaven and so forth. John the Baptist is saying uh, to the soldiers, be content with your wages. Just so let's 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 get out of this kind of revolutionary kind of mode. 
But to the wealthy, he says, don't put your affections in the uncertainty of wealth because that's where uh, rust and thieves uh, break in and steal. Put your treasures in heaven and, and, and all. And so what Cunningham did then was say, so what we have here is a dynamic that's unique in history. The wealthy and the poor are coming together not not to not to push against one another or to uh, one to put the other down or one to rise up and overthrow the other one, but suddenly they're brothers in Christ. And slowly the poor begin to understand how to accumulate and, and manage wealth, and the wealthy begin to learn what the real needs of the poor are and not to think that it's all because they're just lazy bums, that, that something has to open up in their minds and since the, 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 one of the central messages of the scriptures were made in the image and the likeness of God, when that knowledge breaks through to the wealthy and the poor, it has dramatic effects on the economy. So anyway, he had, he had, he had talked about that, and I was so taken by it. I took my notes, and I went with my, at my children's uh, insistence and wife um, uh, to see uh, a movie that was playing at the time called Working Girls. And uh, and working girls is you know a, a, about a business in Manhattan and so forth, and it's it, it's it's an okay movie. It's uh, not not something I wanted to write home about. But when the credits were rolling, Carly Simon's song came on. Let the river run. Let all the uh, dreamers wake the nation. Come the new Jerusalem. And as she sang that with this kind of gospel choir sound, uh, it just was a very powerful uh, moment for me. And I titled my sermon, Let the River Run, and I asked our fantastic choir if they could learn it, and the choir director amazingly said that they would. And so we opened up the service with this song, Let the river run, let all the dreamers wake the nation, come the new Jerusalem. And just this powerful sound filled the auditorium. And so I began to tell the people, I want to talk to you today about how we allow the current's of God's Spirit that's within us, to flow. Now, as a charismatic congregation, you think I'm going to talk about, you know, freedom of gifts of the Holy Spirit and worship and all that's very important things. But I want to talk about the creative mind that God has given you. I want to talk about the gifts that God has placed in you, the unique ones that each of us have individually, and how that these also are gifts, along with the more spectacular ones that we, you know, we don't often t- pay attention to these gifts or even think of them as spiritual gifts. So what happened in the next two, I mean, the, well, what happened in that service was people were transfixed. You know, I was amazed by it. They wouldn't leave their pews. And so the founding pastor, which was a, the lead pastor at the time, said to the people, We've got to come back tonight and process this. It's, all, it's a tremendously powerful moment for us. Anyway, dozens of ministries, uh, extraordinary kinds of, of work came from this, including Dave Ramsey, who was there, and he founded uh, uh, the um, uh, Financial Peace University and, of course, his radio program, Dan Miller, with his uh, emphasis on vo- uh, vocation and, and all, and it just goes on and on and on, the stories that come from that really dramatic realization, that charismatic life, or if you will, the life of the Holy Spirit that's available to all God's people everywhere, ought to result not just in uh, some inner 
uh, pietistic change within us, but ought to also flow out in creative power out into the world, not only the believing world, but the unbelieving world as well. I know you've published a a book entitled Let the River Run. Why did you publish this book, and what what does it have uh, to to offer in this area of faith, work, and economics? Well, I had uh, been pastoring a church in Phoenix for 10 years. I left Nashville in 84, and and I I was out in the central part of Phoenix. And uh, we had a large church out there, and we were dealing with – the dislocated uh, uh, Native Americans, the uh, the immigrant population, of, of course, there close to the border. And I was just overwhelmed with their needs. And we had food banks and we had all the things that Christians do and should do. I knew that we had to get underneath this problem at a deeper level. And as I reflected back on what had occurred in Nashville, then, uh, you know, we be- we began to see similar things occur there. So when I was called back in 2004 to pastor uh, Christ Church and, uh, in Nashville, uh, I realized a whole new wave of people had come in and that some of this uh, emphasis had been uh, lost. And so I wrote the book so that it was really for our internal usage, though it's probably been read as much outside as inside, so that the people would know uh, what kind of heritage they had there and what could occur again in a new generation. Tell us uh, a little bit about how these, this focus on, uh, on work and economics and, and focus on poverty and uh, the tensions between the rich and the poor, how has this been received by the congregation and what impacts do you see in their, in their lives that they're sharing with you as their pastor? Well, uh, in 25 years ago when this occurred, it was a dramatic effect. And, in fact, uh, untold amounts, hundreds of people, I think that's no exaggeration, went on to make huge adjustments in their life that has uh, resulted in great flourishing. Today, our church is dealing with about a third of our congregation are immigrants. And... Um, uh, and we're beginning to see that in their life. Though the upward mobility is obviously at a different level, uh, they begin at a different place. Um, here's here's the issue for Nashville and a good part of the South. I, I, I was uh, born in the first few years of my life, was raised in southern West Virginia. Uh, my family's been uh, in that area of the country uh, since the early 1700s. Um, and then my parents became missionaries when I uh, w- w- was a, uh, in my early teens, and so I didn't return to the United States until age 31 and uh, had to uh, come back into this culture and its language and so forth, readapt myself to this culture. And a central problem is always always uh, provoking me. In Latin America, we watched... Uh, as poor people receive the gospel, and we watch the economic lift. I mean, you would talk about, when I read uh, liberation theology, for example, I have a great respect uh, for uh, the compassion by which uh, many of these authors write. I've seen the situation that they describe. I've lived in it. I agree a lot with their analysis. But in the end, the reason that I reject liberation theology was it didn't liberate. Liberation theology 
a real liberation theology would be if any man uh, is in Christ, he is a new creature, a creature, and old things have passed away, all things have become new. When the Holy Spirit rests upon a person uh, and uh, he becomes fully alive, there is a flourishing in all parts of life. And I saw that in Latin America. But when I returned to the United States, I did not see it in the Appalachian region. And to a great extent, I see this throughout the South, that though the gospel has been fervently preached and proclaimed here uh, since the founding of the Republic, Nonetheless, uh, some Christians remain terribly poor. There's a lot of addiction. There's a lot of dysfunction uh, and, and family life and so forth. And, and I began to believe that, uh, to some extent, our religion uh, ha- was carrying the germ as well as the cure and uh, that we had to take another look theologically on what was missing. That led me to think about the groups in America that prosper and those that do not, because that that research is out there. There's a book uh, currently about it called The Triple Package. And at the top of the heap, as you would think, are Jewish people, but also Mormons and uh, also Presbyterians, uh, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics. Um, And uh, you, you can look at it denominationally. You can look at it ethnically. And uh, it's fascinating to see this. But there is a commonality in those people that flourish uh, of those groups that are faith-based groups uh, rather than ethnicities. And what is what is there is that there is a structure of belief uh, that it does not entail an escape from the world, but that as we prepare for the world to come, uh, we are flourishing in this life, and that in this life we begin to see some of the effects of the gospel at work, uh, not just that we're transformed in our character, but we are transformed in the products of our hands because we are uh, called to co-create uh, with God. As an undergraduate, um, as I reflect now back upon what options seem to be available for me to think about wealth and poverty and money, it seems to me that that two options were were held out to me. One was the prosperity gospel. Many evangelicals have found traction there in their Bibles because they they have noted uh, how uh, wealth is a blessing of God, and they've they've focused on those passages where God promises to prosper the work of their hands. And then another option, and the one that was really advocated in the seminary where I studied was one in in which uh, money is treated as sort of a necessary evil. And uh, these are evangelicals as well, and they find traction in Scripture by focusing on all the warnings about money, the warnings about about wealth. And uh, they leave uh, sort of... um, uh, leave you in a position of, uh, I don't know, torn. We, we have to have money to live and so forth. And so over time, I've found, found these, these options uh, both uh, unsatisfying, and yet at the same time, we've got two groups of evangelicals who show their evangelical identity by focusing on parts of, uh, parts of Scripture. What what have you come to in dealing with sort of the the message of the whole Bible about these matters? I think this is a crucial question, and I thank you for asking it. And as a person who has had a, a, a deep connections to the charismatic movement for a long time, um, I've, it, it's a particular uh, uh, 
uh, important question to answer. Um, but I think the missing ingredient on both sides is the uh, is the uh, thing of vocation. Uh, we are called. Uh, for a good part of my life, it would have been a hindrance to my me- to my ministry to have lots of money. When I lived over top of the our church uh, building, when my wife and I was first married, uh, we lived in Managua. Uh, Managua had been devastated by an earthquake the year before, and this was just uh, shortly before the Sandinista Revolution. And so we lived there in, in the poorest of the poor kinds of neighborhood. Um, and uh, so I, I am romantically attached to those people who go to the inner cities and live in, in, in a kind of a neo-monastic sort of existence. I'm romantically attached not only to their lifestyle, but but uh, to uh, their presentation, and uh, and I uh, I deeply respect them. I do believe, though, that they are mistaken, um, and um, they're mistaken, not utterly mistaken, because I think this tension is there. It's in the text, and it must be uh, respected. I respect them because they care about following the commands of the Lord, and they're willing to give up everything and follow Christ. How can that not be compelling? Uh, but as we learn in the book of Judges, uh, even the sincerity of forsaking everything and being obedient to God as you understand him uh, can lead to disastrous consequences if you have misunderstood poorly what God is asking you to do. Uh, likewise, in the prosperity gospel, uh, I think uh, uh, that critics of the prosperity gospel fail to notice one thing, and that is it's not the wealthy people that are rushing to follow the prosperity gospel. It's the poor people. And why are the poor people rushing to follow the prosperity gospel? Because it contains hope. It's hope that they haven't heard for a long time. Life can be better for you. Uh, life can be better for your descendants. There is a way out of this. Christ is the deliverer who can come into your situation and set you free. But in this camp, too, there's something vitally missing. And that is those warnings about the deceitfulness of wealth, uh, those uh, the the teaching of stewardship and and how to apply oneself, and the entire uh, there's such an anti-intellectual kinds of uh, things that work in American evangelicalism as a whole, but very strongly in the charismatic world, so that everything becomes a matter of spiritually leaping out of oneself and getting a spiritual solution. Uh, we we tend to be people that are polarized in all these different ways, but each of these contains something to look at. Uh, well, I said a few minutes ago that uh, that for much of my life work uh, that handling lots of money would have been a detriment. I needed I I still had at four hundred dollars a month I was making more than the people around me, um, uh, but. Uh, I didn't need to be driving a Lexus in that situation. For one thing, I would have been killed, so that wouldn't have been good. But it would have created the kinds of envy that would allow the people would not have been able to hear my message. They wouldn't have heard it as hope. They would have heard it as, here's a rich, wealthy American guy coming down and telling us how to live, and he has no idea how we're suffering. Christ enters into the suffering of people. And uh, and so there are points where God calls us to do that, and for a season of my life, God called me to do that. And it's interesting that when I returned to this country, one day I was sitting at uh, Shoney's, 
uh, and a Presbyterian uh, elder of a church in, in our hometown came and walked over to me, and he said, uh, I was reading the Bible today, and I knew I would see you. And I I never saw him, so I didn't know what he was going to say. And he said, I feel like I should give you a message. And the message is the scripture where Paul says he had learned to be content in want and in abounding. And he said, I feel like the Lord would have me to tell you that he uh, he knows that you are, have learned to be content in want. And he's going to test you to see if you can be content in abounding. Well, I laughed, and I said, well, that shouldn't be any problem. But as a matter of fact, it's lots of problems. In some ways, it's easier to live away from the temptation of wealth. But you look at this. All the areas of, of, uh, of adult responsibility are dangerous to the spiritual life. Our sexuality is a danger to our spiritual life. Food, for that matter, can be a danger to our spiritual life. And alcohol and can be a danger to our spiritual life. Wealth can be a, a danger to our spiritual life. Power. You know, a lot of these people that, that you know, they have an enormous influence. Uh, and uh, in, even in these kind of monastic kinds of uh, movements, they have enormous influence that it's nearly cultic. That can be dangerous to the spiritual life as well. So the point is not to either make wealth a virtue or to make it an enemy of spiritual life, but to ask, what has God called you to do? If he wants you to build a hospital, you're going to need lots of money. You better start raising some money. If he's calling you to live among 400 people in the middle of the jungle that's language, uh, that needs the Bible in their own language, you're probably not going to need a whole lot of money. You're going to need enough money to sustain you, to educate you, and then you're going to go and you're going to need sustenance, uh, living standards there. So it's about vocation. What has God called you to do? And when you learn that, what God's called you to do, then you're responsible to figure out what you're going to need, not only in terms of your financial support, but also uh, your habits of life and the cultivation of your mind and able to be able to do that. And that's what I think the Bible teaches. And that's what flourishing is, by the way, is living a life that's conforming, conforming uh, to the pattern that God designed for you before he created the world. When I read in uh, Deuteronomy, uh, one of the messages that, that, that I hear there is, uh, first of all, Moses telling the people of Israel, here's what's going to happen. God is about to bless you in ways that are far beyond what, what, what you could imagine. And then he immediately begins to issue warnings. This is going to be a great a great danger to you when this when this wealth uh, comes, and yet it is going to be brought. Uh, it's going to be uh, brought by God. Uh, you've talked about flourishing, um, and uh, this is also something that our previous guests uh, spoke of. Um, where does poverty fit in your understanding theologically of what God is doing in this time between? Uh, the fall <clears throat> in the garden and the coming of a new a new heaven and and a new earth what what's the place uh, i guess in one at one level what's the place of suffering uh, but if we can understand poverty and you can tell me if you see it this way if we can understand poverty as a dimension of suffering if not say so but where does poverty fit in what god is now doing well uh poverty uh, is suffering uh, sickness is suffering, and yet sickness was not God's intention in the original creation either. 
uh, these are these are fruits of the fall. Poverty's not good. If uh, all these folks that think the poverty's good, I just recommend them to try it for a while. Uh, poverty uh, means uh, rotting teeth. It means appendix that bursts that you can't get care for. It 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 means an early uh, uh, grave. Uh, it there uh, there are blessings of poverty, uh, and. Uh, Many people become very wise that have lived poor lives and sometimes in not ways that would have been very difficult for them to better their circumstances. But poverty itself is a curse, and it's a part of the fall, and it's a part of sin. It's a product of sin. When we romanticize poverty, we might as well romanticize promiscuity or uh, or any other kind of uh, affliction of humankind. Uh, when Jesus came to bring good news to the poor, the good news was, guess what? You get to wallow more in your poverty, and and uh, uh, that's not what he was saying. He came to deliver people. He came to deliver people from poverty. And uh, I, I do not know of a single place in history where Christian revival has not occurred, where Christian revival has occurred, that has not resulted in economic lift. I do not know a single case. And I especially would point out the Wesleyan revivals that affected the Great Britain and the United States. And I would say, go to so far to say, without the Wesleyan revivals, there would be no capitalistic system in the United States, and there would have been no flourishing of economic life here except for a very few people. Wesley was the person who took it to the masses, took it to the poor. Uh, and uh, often we characterize his revival meetings as being like emotion. He he barely tolerated that. But he but he realized that people were uh, were reacting emotionally because we're emotional creatures, and 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 he made room for it. But he had uh, he had in mind a vigorous discipleship of the individual that resulted inevitably uh, in flourishing, and uh, it saved uh, England from the um, French Revolution, um, and uh, and it uh, hopped over the pond and created much of the economic structures of our own country. Um, so um, I, I, I just, I, poverty, poverty is not to be romanticized, and, and uh, I've lived in poverty. I've lived with people of poverty. Uh, but uh, one thing we need to teach people and is if you're going to live in poverty, do not think of yourself as poor and think of the situation as, as temporary. Uh, it's something that you are doing for a while. Jesus did not lay aside all his glory and power forever. He did it for a specific task that he was undertaking on our behalf. I'm not an economist, uh, but I find myself, uh, as I think about these issues, wanting to know more about the economy and seeing that it, that it matters. I seem to be uh, finding a, a consensus uh, among a, a large number of people who uh, study these matters, that there's really not a controversy that free markets and capitalism have proven to be the great lifter of human beings uh, out of poverty. Objections uh, or concerns that are raised in, in the wake of this incredible wealth machine uh, that uh, has been churning over the last couple of centuries and a half uh, two that I would mention and just have you comment on. One is that while a great deal of wealth is being produced and and many, many people are being lifted out of poverty, 
what's also happening is uh, uh, a wide gap between haves and have-nots, or a wide gap uh, between. And so this is something our president has addressed uh, recently. Is that something we that as as followers of Christ and as uh, churches uh, that bear His name should be concerned about? And a second uh, matter is that uh, development of technology uh, ends up replacing workers with machines and uh, often destroying ways of life uh, that that communities uh, have enjoyed. Uh, what are your thoughts about? about this sort of the, the flip side of the coin of, of, of free markets and capitalism? Well, I think um, there's a difference between capitalism and free markets and laissez-faire capitalism where we trust uh, everybody to have good intentions uh, and and we put absolutely no restraints on them at all. And this is where I disagree with lots of my evangelical friends uh, about this. Uh, or or conservative uh, friends, for that matter, uh, because uh, almost every Christian heresy uh, forgets one thing, and that is we are fallen creatures. And as fallen creatures, we are apt to go the wrong direction and to be corrupted. And when we have power of any form, including money, we tend to use it for ourselves. Um, and uh, and we tend to less and less be interested in how it's affecting others. Now, this happens in the area of power, for example. Uh, many pastors are uh, ruthless in their exercise of power, and they have no idea. Sometimes they're real advocates of moral reform, and they thunder out you know, against all kinds of evils in societies, but you, you ever work for them, and, and you'll be sorry because they're just absolute ogres. Um, and they have no idea that they've been so terribly corrupted. There's no sanctification going on there, and they've invalidated their entire message. And that seems to be the emperor has no clothes. Uh, this happens too in the form when when Christian people become wealthy without stewardship teaching. Uh, then they don't know what to do with it. And this is what we see in the prosperity gospel. As a matter of fact. Uh, and I've seen this a lot in the charismatic movement. Some of our charismatic preachers think that, you know, there's nothing particularly wrong with, you know, making a million dollars a year as a preacher of the gospel and having a ring on every finger and so unbecoming and, and unwholesome. Uh, it just doesn't characterize the person of Christ at all. But what has happened in almost every case, the people were raised in abject poverty and they feel liberated and, and they haven't had, uh, enough training to know what to do uh, with this. Uh, so you, uh, you use the example where, you know, the Lord was talking to the uh, Hebrews about going into a land that flowed with milk and honey. He warned them, don't forget me now. When you've got houses that you didn't build, you've got vineyards you didn't plant. I gave you this stuff. But when you will say by my own hand, I have made myself wealthy. And he said, you know, because when that day comes, the fall is beginning. And that's what we have in the United States right now. Uh, our, our, uh, one of our most uh, insidious dangers to our system going forward uh, is, is the loss of uh, moral fiber and character in our banking industry, uh, in our uh, great corporations in many, many cases. 
there is such corruption. And so a Christian has to not demonize that corporation or demonize banking, but to, but to exercise faithfully within those systems in the best way uh, that uh, God leads him to. In terms of the disparity, this is a problem and we ought to be concerned because uh, when, when I was a, a little boy in West Virginia, our churches were mostly segregated by race. And there's a still a lot of that, but that situation's improved. Now we're stratified socioeconomically. Rich people go to rich people's churches. Poor people go to poor people's churches. And it's just as repulsive and repugnant to God uh, in, in this area as it was in the racial area. Um, and what's happening is we're living in, our, in neighborhoods separated from one another, and so we forget what life is like. Uh, on these different sides of the divide, and um, now now we have the the problem of Cain. Uh, when God says, "Where's your brother, Cain?" and Cain says, "I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper?" and there's your first Anne Rand uh, libertarian right there. Uh, I, what's that to me? It's a wrong answer, and God God told him, you know, that it's not an answer that pleased God. And that's in the fourth chapter of Genesis. It's pretty early, pretty foundational. You better care about your neighbor as yourself. That's the second thing. Love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The question is not loving your neighbor. That's an imperative for the Christian. The question is how. And if it would help the poor to, to disperse equally the wealth, then a Christian would have to advocate that we should do that. Um, but... Uh, we know that uh, that that's not the answer. It hasn't helped. The war on poverty in Appalachia has not solved pro- poverty in Appalachia. I can tell you that. So what's needed is for a change of mind. This is a spiritual issue. It cannot be solved by political means. It can't be solved by sociologists. All these good people do their work, and the political arena is a very important arena. But what happens to lift people from their despair is the gospel that changes their heart and gives them hope of a, of a new day. And then on that hope and in this great change that comes into their uh, heart, uh, they begin to study the word of God and apply its principles to life. And when we do that together, the rich and the poor, uh, then there is lift for everyone. So yes, I think that this social we have we have the you know on on the left you know they they decry that but their solutions don't work, and on the right, uh, the hardening of the heart against the poor uh, is an affront to a holy God and a just God, and on that I agree as much uh, as any leftist kind of uh, rhetoric that's out there uh, that that issue must be raised, but they do not have the right answer. Pastor Scott, we're so happy to have you today. These are fascinating and deep and important issues, and I'm very happy to think about you there in Nashville uh, with this kind of uh, commitment to these issues and to what the Bible teaches uh, shaping that congregation there. We're so happy to have Dan Scott, pastor of Christ Church in Nashville, Tennessee, with us today. Thank you for joining us for this Beeson podcast. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. 
Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.